Hey, as you see that you can turn to Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8 in your Bibles. It's not that bad. All right, beginning of verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he was cast down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offerings were taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it, will thro- and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. And I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called Gabriel, Make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. 
His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And I arose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Father, we are grateful for your word, even the parts of your word that are difficult. Because we trust that your spirit can still speak and still bring life and still bring joy and hope and salvation to your people. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to come and illuminate and help us to see the truths that you have for us. We pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would do deep soul work in us today. That we would be transformed. That we would again hear the beauty of the gospel and again repent and believe. And maybe for some here today for the first time. So do all these things because you love us because you want to glorify yourself in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue in the story of God's people in exile in Babylon, and through God's prophet Daniel, by looking at this second vision in the second half of the book. Daniel is a major prophetic book split in half. Chapters 1 through 6, as we have seen, are narratives, some of the most famous Bible stories ever told and recorded. Chapter 7 and 12 are recording of four visions that we're basically looking at over four Sundays. Last Sunday, Kendrick walked us through the first vision, and uh, today we'll walk through the second and the next two Sundays, the final two. Daniel the prophet who received this vision is by now 70 years old, about. He's been in Babylon most of his life, taken captive by the Babylonians when he was about 15. If you remember from some of the background information, I have no idea why that's happening. If you remember from some of the background information that we shared with you earlier, there were basically three captivities of the Israelites by the Babylonians uh, between over about 20 years, from 605 B.C. to about 586 B.C. Daniel and his friends were taken in the first captivity around 605 B.C. The 70 years of exile wouldn't begin, the timetable wouldn't begin until the final destruction of Jerusalem in 586. So Daniel's been in Babylon for 55 years. You think, man, he's almost out. It's almost 70 years, but it's actually not the case. Daniel will not live to see the return of the Jews to their homeland. He will die before that happens. But he has at least 11 more years because this vision in chapter 8 came two years after the vision of Daniel 7 in the third year of Belshazzar. We're about 11 years away from the events of chapter 5 when the Babylonians have this drunken feast and all of a sudden everything is brought to a halt when a hand shows up writing on the wall and Daniel is summoned from his quarters to read the writing on the wall which ended up being a pronouncement of judgment on the Babylonians that very night the Medo-Persians were coming in under the city wall after they dammed up the river to overtake Babylon. This is where this vision takes place about 11 years before those events. Now as Kendrick's pointed out last week, uh, and, and gave some background on apocalyptic writing. This, this is the style of writing the second half of Daniel is known for, apocalyptic writing. We, we mostly use that term to think of the end times and the end of the world. I just freeze, maybe it won't happen. But um, 
But that's not really what the word means. Like just this past week, a guy posted a video on Twitter entitled Apocalyptic Scenes in Houston. And it was post-Hurricane Harvey. And there were birds flying everywhere around the interstate. And people and cars pulled over to the side and walking everywhere and just trash everywhere. And it, it, in our minds, it looked apocalyptic, like the end of the world. Or some of us, as I do, like post-apocalyptic movies. Movies of where the world has ended through some man-made disaster, whether it be global warming or thermonuclear war, and now humans are left to survive and make it. So movies like Book of Eli and Waterworld and Wally and I Am Legend and The Matrix and Snowpiercer, some of the great movies of <laughs> human existence. The Lost Skeleton of Cadavera. All of the great movies are post-apocalyptic. Well, that's not the biblical understanding of apocalyptic. It simply means revelation. Although some of the details and visions do have to do with the last days or the end of time. The problem is, we've officially been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Every generation anticipates the end of this age and the next age. For us, it's when Christ returns. And every generation of, of Christians have believed it would be their generation. Every, and part of this is by design. Like We're told to live with that imminent expectation of the, of the return of Christ. Like it could happen at any time. Live with this imminence. But part of that is because we're not told. We're not given any indication when Christ will return. We're just told to be ready. Be alert. Stay on guard. It can happen at any time. Some will try and tell you that we can read signs and know when this is about to happen. And, and they attempt to do that on Facebook all the time. Even had someone tell me recently that 1 Thessalonians 5.4 tells us as those who walk in the light and not darkness, we won't be surprised when the day comes because we'll have warnings and signs. Two problems with that viewpoint. First, it's a misunderstanding of the text. Those who walk in light and not in darkness are not surprised by the day of the Lord, not because we get special signs and warnings that we understand as his people, but because we've obeyed Jesus and the rest of the New Testament that told us to stay alert, to be ready. So when he shows up, we're not going to be like, oh my goodness, what's happening? We're going to be like, yes, let's do this. Let's go. But secondly, we can't hardly find two people who can agree on any sign or warning, right? The next eclipse that comes along, you know, we just had one. This is it. It comes and it goes and here we are. The next blood moon that comes along. Some apocalyptic writing is hard to grasp. Thankfully, much of what we find in Daniel 8 isn't hard because God reveals to us what most of it means. And what we find in Daniel 8 is this overarching message related to the presence of God and the suffering of His people and how we can endure this suffering with Him. In the vision, Daniel is taken to a city called Susa, made famous in the biblical story of Esther, a city about 230 miles east of Babylon, maybe, maybe a city that Daniel visited while he was doing the king's business, uh, maybe not. In the vision, he was standing by the Ulai Canal, and in the vision, he sees a ram, then a goat. And I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on the details of the vision, because we're told what they mean in verses 20 through 22, uh, the identity of these people. But everything said about them was amazingly accurate. The two-horned ram representing the Medo-Persian Empire. First the Medes rose to power, and then the second horn rose to power, became greater than the first horn, the Persian Empire, and overtook them. Their kingdom was amazing and mighty and fierce, and they, they did conquer lands to the north, the west, and the south. And all of this would begin in just 11 years in Daniel chapter 5. The empire, though, would be quickly overtaken by the male goat who came from the west, the first king, Alexander the Great. 
The Greeks would come with amazing speed as the ram was off the ground and overtake and expand the Grecian Empire beyond even the borders of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then suddenly the large horn was broken. Alexander died suddenly of an illness at age 32. His sons were killed. The kingdom was split into four parts, each controlled by one of his four powerful generals. This would happen around the 320s, 330s BC, a little over 200 years from the time of this vision to Daniel. Lastly, from them would come this little horn. I want to spend a little bit more time on this guy. There's a relationship between the little horn in Daniel 8 and the little horn prophecy of Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, it's more about a character that we call the Antichrist, this man of lawlessness who's yet to come, who will do battle or attempt to do battle with God and his people before he's quickly destroyed. In Daniel 8, it's a type of this individual, a type of Antichrist, who was a historical figure in the Greek Empire known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Look again at some of the language about this guy in the vision and the interpretation. In verse 9, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Skip over to verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Several things to notice. The little horn grew great in power, so great he eventually tries to battle God, the prince of princes and God's people, and have apparent success, like in some ways destroying these regular burnt offerings and overthrowing his sanctuary, it says. He's known for his cunning and manipulative power, but one day he'll be broken, but not by a human hand. Antiochus Epiphanes came to power, not because he was next in line, just his natural succession in the Seleucid kingdom of the Greeks, but because he overtook other people who are next in line through cunning and manipulation and scheming and plotting. He quickly expanded his territory through military conquest conquest, and desire to unify all of his territory under Greek rules so that he instituted these laws to do away with all of the religion, all of the cultures, all of the customs. It's going to be a total Greek culture. So Jewish culture has to do away with it. Circumcision, out. Scriptures, destroy. Worship and sacrifices at the temple, no more. Not only that, but he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the Holy of Holies, thus desecrating the temple and the sanctuary, this abomination that leads to desolation that we'll look at later on. He was known for his cruelty at times, slaughtering thousands of men and women and children. Eventually, trying to force the Jews to give up Judaism was too much, and they fought back. And what became known as the Maccabean Revolt, which is celebrated every year at the festival of Hanukkah, they ran Antiochus out of town, and he later died a mysterious death. I read a few different accounts. 
He drowned himself at sea. He died from a chariot fall or he died of an illness. Who knows? God killed him. Now, another part of the vision was this promise, was the promise that this time would be limited. In verses 13 and 14, And I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. There are several views about what that 2,300 number means. It could be literal days. It could be morning and evening sacrifices. So there's only 1,150 days. It could be something more symbolic. Whatever it actually refers to, the main understanding of the text is this time of persecution at the hands of Antiochus would be limited. It would begin and it would end. All by God's power. Now Daniel's response to all of this is interesting. He wants to understand, he hears a man's voice directing Gabriel, one of the two named angels in the Bible, to help Daniel understand. The voice, God, who directs his angels, his messengers, to do his will, reveals through Gabriel this vision is for the time of the end. Or as it says in verse 19, the latter end of the indignation, the appointed time of the end. Like some see this as a reference to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. Some see it as a reference to the second coming of Christ. It's probably both in some way. I mean, look at Daniel's response in verse 27. He's appalled and overcome and sick for some days, and he didn't understand it. So we we have to leave some mystery even for us in this. To simply be troubled and not fully grasp what isn't fully revealed. But there is enough to be instructive and helpful. Like we basically have a vision from Daniel's perspective about the next 400 years or so of world rulers, one particular ruler is going to arise and do battle with God and God's people. And then also after a certain ordained period of time, he will be cut off. And so what does the vision of Daniel 8 have to do with us? We're not Medo-Persians, we're not Jews, we're not Greeks. It's 2017, it's not BC anything. We've seen Antiochus Epiphanes come and go with hundreds of, others, uh, uh, hundreds of other evil rulers and kings and emperors who have done battle against God and God's people or tried to. Like the application, I hope and pray, encouragement, maybe conviction, maybe comfort that God brings from this passage is related to God's presence with his people when we suffer, when we struggle, when we're persecuted. Like we need a big view of God to go through that. Whatever shape that it takes, whatever form it takes. And this this passage does that. But before we jump into that, let's think about the reasons for our struggle and suffering. I think it's important we do this. The passage has a very specific cause of the suffering of God's people. Not only under the rule of Antiochus, but also the whole reason they are in Babylon to begin with. Verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. The persecution they will endure will be because of their sins. The same reason they are in Babylon. It's not because Babylon is great and they finally got around to conquering Jerusalem and Israel, why the Jews are in exile. They continually rejected the admonition of God through his prophets to repent. And so they, as told by God, would be exiled for a period of 70 years. And they recognize, the prophets recognize, 
while they were in exile, this is why we're in exile. It's not because Babylon is great. It's because we're sinful. And our God, our Father, has chosen to discipline us. And so the exile is a form of God's loving and chastising discipline of His people. And so sometimes we suffer and we struggle because we are chasing sin and God is chasing us to bring us back. And sometimes when one of the sheep keep wandering off from the flock, the shepherd has to go and break a leg so they will stay close to the flock and not keep wandering off bringing worse harm to themselves than a broken leg. This is, that's a very clear, very specific application to us. We're actually going to deal with this more in Daniel chapter 9, but I don't want to skim past it today. Like if you're here this morning as one of God's children and you're chasing sin unrepentantly without confession, without trying to fight it, if you're actually more consumed with hiding your sin and enjoying your sin, your Father in heaven loves you and He's coming after you to discipline you and bring you back. And it may resemble some kind of suffering and persecution. It may resemble Him allowing you to suffer the natural consequences of your sinful choices. So for all of us who are His children, we need to ask this morning, the Spirit of God, to to give us a sober assessment of ourselves when we are suffering or struggling. Maybe even get wise counsel from others who love us. Like, do you see patterns of ongoing, unconfessed, unrepentant sin in my life? And we need to repent and trust in Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness once again. That might be why we're suffering. The much scarier place would be to be given over to your sins because you're not truly a child of your Father in heaven. So He's not disciplining us. He's just giving you what you want. Apart from Christ, what we really want is to love and worship ourselves and to love and worship sin. And so God's response to those who aren't His children, Romans 1, is to let us have what we want, have what we love, which is not Him. It's the passive wrath of God against sin. And so the call to the non-believer is, God is holy, you are not. And all we deserve, all you deserve is wrath and condemnation. All we've earned in our natural state apart from Christ is hell. But God is also gracious and merciful and loving. And so if you're here today and you've never truly come alive in Christ, hear and see the beautiful gospel of Jesus. That He would take and absorb the wrath of God for you and give you not only forgiveness and right standing in God's eyes, but give you credit for the righteous works of Christ. So that now and forever you would be adopted into God's family his son, his daughter, dearly loved by your father, fully pleasing to him because you're standing in Christ. And that, that leads to everything that you do. That leads to obedience. So repent and believe in the gospel. Place the entire weight of your life and trust and future and hope on Christ. Interestingly, the response to our suffering is the same. Whether our suffering is because we are God's child chasing sin and experiencing His discipline, or if we're not a believer and we're experiencing the passive wrath of God. The response to all of us is to repent, turn from our sin, trust in Jesus. And that's why we can also make a broader application 
to all suffering because we don't always know the cause or reason for our suffering. But the response is really all the same. Repent. Trust in Jesus. Fully believing Jesus and His Word and trust Him and His Word again. Like sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. And sometimes we suffer... Um, the suffering we go through is not ex- the explicit sins that we're committing, but our faith is being tested. So as far as we know, we're not committing any egregious, outright rebellious sin against God. This is the, the suffering of Job. Job's just minding his own business, living life, loving God, most righteous man on earth. And the next thing he knows, one day, messengers show up. All your family's dead. All your crops and livestock and fields have been taken, seized, destroyed by your enemies. You've lost everything, Job, except for your life and your wife. Job did not know there had been a conversation in heaven between God and Satan over him. Job did not know that the purpose of this suffering that he was experiencing was because Satan wanted to prove that Job only loved God and worshipped God because God had blessed him and protected him. And then God ordained that it was okay to do this. Just don't kill him. Job didn't know that when he got the painful boils and sores and and skin issues that were excruciating, that it was again another allowance of God to let Satan torment him, to test his faith, to see if it was genuine and true. Job never knew any of that conversation took place. Maybe when he died, the Lord revealed it. But he was suffering. His faith was being tested and tried. Sometimes we suffer not because of our sin, but because we are God's people, hated by God's enemies, and are at times attacked for that. And in the process, our faith is tested. Before Peter denies Christ, what does Jesus tell Peter in Luke 22? Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat. What you're about to go through has been asked by God's greatest enemy and I, God, am allowing it. Paul receives the vision of the third heaven and is given a messenger of Satan, thorn in the flesh, to keep him humble. And even though he prays three times to have it removed, God did not remove it so that he would learn that God's grace was sufficient. His faith would persevere. Now, the testing of our faith is not so that God would determine if our faith is genuine. God knows, right? He's kind of omniscient, as we'll see in a little while. He knows if your faith is real. In fact, He gave you your faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that our faith is a gift of God's grace so that there's no aspect of our salvation for which we can boast. Even the faith we profess is a gift of God's grace. So He obviously knows if your faith is genuine or real. The testing of your faith is so that you will know it's genuine. So that you will know it's real. Whatever God allows in our life as His kids is not meant to crush us or or cause us to walk away from the faith. It's for our good, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29, to make us and conform us to the image of His Son. God's purpose for your suffering and trial is to strengthen you and grow you in ways that you cannot grow apart from the trial. That's his big overarching purpose. And I don't say that as some kind of trite pie in the sky, make you feel better message to people who are really hurting. We can say it because we know it to be true. 
But it's possible that what you need to hear today is not these kinds of truths. It's possible that you just need the body of Christ to surround you. And to weep with those who weep. To grieve with those who grieve. To be a compassionate listening ear. Like you don't, you're not ready for the truth yet because you're, you're hurting so much. Like I wouldn't go to Houston to help people from the, the flood and walk around telling them, cheer up, God's purpose is for your good. What, what are you crying about? Why are you sad? There's a place and time for truth and teaching. But when people are suffering, there is a place just to weep and grieve with them. But what God has ordained for our lives in terms of suffering, and he's ordained some for all of us, just in case you're young enough, you haven't really suffered much, it's coming. It's not intended to crush you or dissolve our faith. In fact, if your faith is genuine, it can't dissolve. As Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you as wheat. When you return, you're going to fail me miserably, Peter. But I know you're coming back because you're mine. Your faith can't be dissolved if it's genuine. And if it does dissolve, it was never genuine and it needs to be exposed as faulty faith. With the hope that you would repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we suffer not because we're in rebellion against God, not because He's disciplining us, even sometimes through Satan, but because we commit sins of omission. Like we don't do what is good and wise and we're allowed to suffer the natural consequences of living foolishly. We put off and put off changing the oil in our car because we don't budget the necessary money or we don't budget the necessary time or we're just lazy and procrastinating. Eventually our car breaks down. And we're on Facebook. Satan's attacking me. My car broke down. Oh, the troubles and trials and tribulations I'm going through. It's really just negligence. And you can replace the oil in your car with just about any other situation in your life that you neglect. And over time, there are consequences to negligence that will result in struggling and suffering. Neglect your marriage. Neglect your kids. Neglect your schoolwork, students. It's Labor Day. How y'all doing so far? Keeping up? If not, you're already suffering consequences. Neglect your health. Neglect your retirement account. Neglect your boss's requests and expectations for your job. Neglect the Word of God and intentional times of desperate prayer. Neglect your relationships and on and on we could go. We suffer at times for our sins of omission. We're not living with intentionality and parts of our life start leaking oil. Weeds start growing and trouble is coming. And we keep ignoring it. We keep escaping into the different places that we go to escape. Entertainment options, sleep, addictive substances, but trouble is coming. Suffering is coming. And then sometimes we suffer just because we live in a sin-cursed world and sin-cursed bodies with sin-cursed people. Natural disasters were not part of the original creation. So hurricanes and tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis and wildfires and monsoons and typhoons happen and we get caught up in them and we suffer. Definitely ordained by God to test our faith, but it affects more than just you. Until Jesus returns, we're all going to experience sickness and death in your body. And whatever causes your body to quit working one day... It will. And maybe it will be gradual and slow into old age. Maybe it will be quick and sudden. However it comes, when it comes, don't be surprised. It's coming. 
And every time we get sick or every time something in us breaks, it's a gentle reminder of our feebleness and our mortality. And so whether like the prophecy of Daniel 8 and our suffering is through the agent of evil and direct response to our sins, or whether it's through an agent of evil and direct response to our righteousness, or you might say God's passive discipline against our sins of omission and neglect, are simply because we live in a sin-cursed world, whatever the cause, we don't always know why it is. It's essential this application be broad because whatever the cause, we can respond in repentance of our sins and faith in God. We can trust Him, which is what He ultimately wants. He wants our hearts. He wants our minds. He wants our wills. He wants our affections. He wants our devotion. We can trust Him. There's two clear reasons that we see in this passage. Number one, because God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. God knows. With incredible detail, God is revealing to Daniel the rise and fall of earthly kingdoms and rulers as well as the persecution and sins of his people over the next 400 years. Details so accurate that those who don't believe the Bible is God's word say, clearly, Daniel was written after the fact. There's no way this was written three, 400 years before these events happened. It's impossible. Unless somehow you're connected to this divine being who knows everything. Well, we are. Which is why we have it. Well, guess what? God knows all things, including present and future suffering of his people. Like, is that comforting to you? That God knows everything about you, including what's coming? It can be when you consider the character and nature of God. Like, we assume everything about our lives is known by someone. If you do anything electronic or online, you're on the grid. And we assume all of this information is being collected and stored. Or at least we should assume, because it's in the movies. It's got to be true. Is it comforting to know that your government or some corporate entities know everything about your life? And so when you go Google search something to buy, the next time you're on Instagram, you get an ad about that object. Or the next time you're on Facebook, that object pops up. Just click here to buy it. Is that comforting to you? I don't think it's comforting. So you either embrace it and just live with integrity and not worry about everything that you're doing being known to whoever, or you try to block it or get off the grid, escape it by deleting everything. But it's definitely not comforting. Why? Because we typically don't trust government or corporations with our lives and knowledge about us. But when you consider the character and nature of God, He is eminently trustworthy as someone who knows everything about us, past present, and future, including our suffering. And even though He knows, and even though we know He knows, He still longs for us to come to Him with our suffering. Philippians 4, 6-7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, because of who God is, he does know but cares deeply for the suffering of his people. Like when Paul, rather when Saul was headed to Damascus to persecute, imprison, and maybe kill more Christians, Jesus confronted him, which led to his salvation, but he confronted him with the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifying with his people that to persecute the church was to persecute Christ. The God who knows all things is not just storing data about you to confront you on judgment day. He cares deeply about you. Everything you are in and everything you will go through. In Jesus' famous passage about worry and anxiety in Matthew 6, He tells us He cares enough about the birds to feed them daily and cares enough about the fields to clothe them with grass and flowers. And are you not of much more value than they? If He takes care of birds and fields every single day without fail, how much more does He take care of His kids? We get this concept uh, because when we're suffering, we know how valuable it is to have people in our life who can share these burdens with, with us, who will simply love us and listen to us. Just a set of compassionate ears many times is all we need, which is part of how God cares for you in suffering. He's given you a family. He's given you the church to walk with you in whatever this life brings. You're not alone. God knows. God cares. Look around this room. He's put these people and people who aren't here today in your life to love you and walk with you in whatever you face. The second thing that we see in this passage is not just God's omniscience, but God's omnipotence. The, The great thing about God, unlike us, He has the power to change our circumstances. He has the power to do anything He wants to do that falls in line with His character and will. We sit and listen to our brothers and sisters bear their souls and so many times, we're just I, just, I just want to fix it. I just want to fix it. Let me fix you. Let me fix your circumstances. Let me just give you a pile of money or heal you or whatever needs to be done. It's so frustrating not to be able to fix people's problems. And all we can seemingly do is listen and love and be with them and pray. But it's, it's different with God. God's omnipotence is on display all through the book of Daniel. It's not just that he knows what's coming. He's bringing it about. The chapter is filled with the divine passive. We've talked about this throughout the book of Daniel. God initiating, ordaining these actions. These kings and rulers and kingdoms are just coming to power and being, are not just coming to power and being conquered by, by the power of stronger men. It's all happening according to the will and timetable of God. Any governing authority or leader that is set in place today, from the president to, the, to, to a nation, to a teacher, to a cop, is in place according to the ordained will of God, an established authority according to Romans 13, in place to be a minister of the Lord, to reward the good, punish the wicked. Like if I was still a school teacher, I would definitely tell my class that. God has put me here to punish the good and uh, reward the good, punish the wicked. And they rise and fall by the power and the might of the Lord. Even the evil and wicked ones ordained by God to accomplish God's purposes that is so mysterious to us. Why God would do things like that? 
The takeaway for us is this. The same God who has all knowledge, who cares deeply for us, has the necessary power to work in our lives. You see this in the passage also in the limitation of the persecution. 2,300 days, mornings and evenings, whatever that is. It would begin, it would end. It would not go on forever. You see God's power in the passage that I read earlier. Philippians 4, 6-7. Don't be anxious, but pray. And what happens? The peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus literally becomes uh, like a soldier on duty, marching around your heart and mind with his peace, guarding you, keeping you from being filled with anxiety and worry because he's constantly giving you his peace and he never stops. He's always on duty, especially as we pray. Don't be, don't per, don't be anxious, but pray. And Jesus is there doing his work in your heart and soul. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me who are weary in what? I will give you rest. I have the power to give you rest. Take, take your labors, take your anxieties, take everything that's weighing you down, give it to me, and I have the power to give you rest. For you to still be in the same mess, but to experience my peace and my rest. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Is preceded by verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. God has the power to limit your suffering, and he will limit your suffering. Your suffering will be limited. Just for the, as for the Jews in the second century BC, they only suffered so long, so will you and I. As a child of your Father in heaven, a promise that's only extended to his kids... This is not for everybody. This is a promise only extended to his kids. You will not suffer forever. It will not just go on and on for all of time and eternity. It will end. And one day it will end and never return. It could be that God delivers you miraculously from your suffering as he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace and as he did Daniel from the pit of lions. Notice, they weren't delivered before they went in the furnace, before they went in the pit. God could have done that. He delivered them through it, out of it. But God was there, and He worked in mighty ways to persevere and protect, and and God can do that. Like, we should live and pray as though God still has the power to do miraculous works on our behalf, because He does. And sometimes by His grace, according to His will, He does these things in our lives, in the lives of people we love. He may not. He's not a vending machine. He's not going to bow His knee to our will and our desires. But we ask, and we never stop asking. Luke 18. You pray persistently, never giving up, but ultimately we submit and we trust. And like Paul, whose messenger of Satan never left, He will give us all the grace we need to endure and thrive. Or his deliverance from our suffering, whether it's through a miracle or through the grace to sustain us through it, his deliverance for suffering may come through death, after which you will never suffer again as a child of God. I know we're so programmed to fear death and fight to live that sometimes that we, for, we forget that for, for, for Christians, death is a doorway to bliss. There are many things far worse than dying. What would it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? 
There's such a focus in parts of even the church world on physical healings. Too many guys making millions of dollars on the backs of mostly poor, uneducated people, deceived people, desperate people. Physical healing is great. Pray for it, right? You're still going to die. You're still going to die. You're going to get sick again. All the people Jesus healed in his three-year incarnational ministry died again. And so alleviating physical pain and suffering is not the ultimate goal of our lives. Alleviating difficult circumstances is not the ultimate goal of our lives. I know that's what we want. We want out. Part of how God is working in our suffering is that we would want him more than we want out. Worshiping and glorifying and enjoying Christ is why we are made. And what happens, and that happens in times of peace and prosperity, but it also happens in times of suffering. Because we are worshiping and trusting the one who suffered far more than we have ever or will ever suffer. Innocently, unrighteously, at the hands of evil and wicked men that God ordained would be the instruments of his wrath. And he was buried and he rose from the grave on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father triumphantly and is there today interceding on our behalf. Telling the Father, they're they're mine, they're mine. You You can't hold that against them, they're mine, they're covered. The Spirit is here with us to give us strength now as his people to endure whatever we have to endure, whether you're in it now or whether it's coming. God is with us. He knows, He cares, and He has the power to alleviate your suffering. It will not last forever. And His people are here to walk with you, to hold you up, to bear your burdens, to make the load lighter so you don't have to suffer alone. Trust in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Walk with Jesus through your suffering. I want to give us an opportunity to respond. After I pray, we're going to uh, have a time to sing. And I, and I just encourage you, if, if you've never trusted in Christ for the first time, don't leave here today without speaking to someone. Someone you came with, I'm always available. Other guys here are available to, to tell you more about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go eat lunch. Let's spend time together this week walking through how the gospel impacts your life. Definitely respond to repentance and belief as the Spirit of God has spoken to you. Respond in sharing in this communion meal with us. Respond in singing songs of praise to this amazing God. Let's leave here changed. Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. He is not distant and far away. He is close to the broken heart. He is near and dear to those who are struggling even the, even the most. Because he is the great sympathizing high priest who's walked in our shoes and knows what it is like to feel what we feel, to hurt like we hurt, to experience what we experience. And so we thank you that Jesus is here today to bring life, to bring strength, to bring hope, to bring encouragement and conviction. Help us to respond as your people. Help us to respond in repentance and faith for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.